Welcome to the space where creators have aligned a positive and intellectual collab of open minds. For sharing and learning from one another, it's a vibe. We give us a podcast on the mic. Subscribe, educators, spitting bars. I guess you didn't know I'm multifaceted and humble, taking off life goals. The classroom is my comfort zone, where I plant and sow. Seeds of knowledge, compassion, empathy, and hope. Reading is the key to unlocking your potential. Countless benefits, including cognitive and mental. Regardless of the genre, books are highly influential. Go get yours, I'll get mine. Make you strive Monumental Come rock with me And get down to this new jam Between my friends I had a very simple plan Educate the masses Through books and life lessons It's the Grand Slam I'm out Welcome to the Reads with Rossa podcast And happy Rotuman Language Week On today's show We have a Rotuman poet She is the author of the poetry collection The Light and Dark in Our Stuff her writing has appeared in several publications, and most recently, she was a contributor to the VA anthology, Stories by Women of the Moana. I am so excited and honored to welcome to the show, Mere Taito. <laughs> welcome. Thank you so much, Rosa. You know, I don't really know who's more excited here. I think I'm more excited than Rosa. So I'm so curious about the podcast. But um, so what I've just said to you is a typical Rutuman introduction where I say my name and I uh, make mention my parents, um, my parents, your parents are always part of your introduction. You are the daughter of two people. Uh, so I mentioned my mother, Taurus Lafieu. I mentioned my father, Moa Taito. And I also make mention to the districts from where they come from in Rutuma. My mother is from the district of Malaha. And my dad is from the district of Mato. So uh, by Rutuman custom, matrilineally, that means I am a woman of Malhaha first, and mm. then a woman of Nuatau, which my dad, you know, turns up his nose uh, a number <laughs> of times. But uh, that's who I am. I'm a woman of Rotuma, um, a daughter of Rotuma. I moved to New Zealand in 2007. I was born and raised in Fiji, educated mm. in Fiji, moved to New Zealand in 2007, and I've been here since, since 2014. Um, so that's me, very short introduction of myself. Wow, that was that was fantastic. You know, I was just in, in awe because I don't, I don't think I've ever heard the Rotsuman language before. So I was like <laughs> blown away, like I could, you know, with our Pacific languages, you know, there are a few, you know, I was like, oh, that I think it means that or, but no, I, I, I don't think, I think I had it all wrong. So thank you so much, Mere, for that introduction. Um, so you mentioned, um, you know, let, let's go back to Rotuma. Like for those of um, us who are unfamiliar, I, mm. You mentioned Fiji, you know, it's north of Fiji, mm. but so we think Fiji and definitely I'm sure for people listening, <laughs> tourists, tourists and tourism. <laughs> um, so when we think Rotuma, what, how would you describe your homeland? That's such a good question. And you, you've mentioned a number of things here. Fiji, it's proximity to Fiji. It's mm. uh, in the Fiji's association with tourism. 
Rotuma is very much an untouched uh, mm. place. By that I mean there is no tourism on the island. We don't have backpackers. Uh, we don't encourage tourism on the island, which is something that I really, really love. And I hope that we don't ever have tourism on the island. Um, it is a very small island. It's, it is slightly smaller than Waiheke. If you're familiar with New yes. Zealand geography, Waiheke, it's almost half the size of Waiheke. And they're wow. about uh, slightly less than 2,000 people on the island. Um, most of most Rutuman Islands have migrated to Fiji. Other diasporic hotspots are Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and America. But the land itself is very untouched. It is mm. still even though a lot of people are not on the island. Um, what else can I say about that? It is, yes, you're quite right. It is uh, approximately... 400 kilometers north of Fiji. And sometimes I smile to myself when I read descriptions <laughs> of the distance of Rotuma from Fiji. Mm. Now I've read 450, I've read 500 kilometers, I've read 600 kilometers. I'm going to write a poem about that title, Proximity, <laughs> and write down all the distances that I've read about Rotuma and its proximity to Fiji. Uh, but mm. yes, um, not many people know about Rutuma. I find that introducing myself in New Zealand as a Rutuman Islander, I often have to give a geography lesson first because many people have never heard of Rutuma or its relationship to Fiji. So I have to go un unravel all of that. But we became a dependent island, dependency of um, Fiji way back in 1881 when the British wow. administration there gave us to Fiji. Because at that time, Fiji was one of the hubs there. The, the colonial hub of um, the Pacific was Fiji. And it was mm. run by a man by the name of Sir Arthur Gordon. So I think as a matter of convenience, we were given to Fiji to look after. And we've always been part of Fiji since then. But our language is mm. different. Our culture is different. You and know, that's what very you, short. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I love it. Thank you so much for, for taking us through that. Because... Yeah, I'm just just the when I was researching Rotuma, just the fact that it is a it's untouched, like it's an untouched paradise. You would think tourism back, you know, that would be a thing. But I was just like, wow, like how many of our islands are untouched, oh, you untouched. know, and have that have that luxury of saying, hey, you know what, we're we're still yes. the same as. So it's so cool. Yeah, I was surprised when I, I looked that up. Yes, but I think I need to be careful with the word untouched because we were touched. We were touched. We were touched in 19, I think in the 1980s. I was still in Fiji when the Fair Star cruise liner visited the wow. island of Rotuma. Yes. And so there was, the island was, I think if I remember correctly, the island was divided. There were people mm. who the fair star there were pictures of people selling the handicrafts to the fair star and of course there was there were a group that were quite disappointed that the fair star had arrived but since then we have never mm. had any cruise liners visiting the island and it is if you want to go to the island mm. you have to go with a Rutuman Islander you have to be associated with a family for them to take you there you could you just can't rock up to Rutuman and get off <laughs> 
where's your backpackers? Where's your BNB? There's no such thing. You know, the islanders would look at you and say, get back on the plane and go where you come mm. from. It doesn't happen. Eh? So I'm very, very happy about that. But I'm sure, you know, a part of me says that it may change later in the future. I don't know. But I'm hoping that we stay that way. Mm. So did you do all of your schooling uh, education in Fiji? Yes. Wow. I, was, I was born in a little town called, um, um, a town called Tavua, which mm. is part of the gold mining settled in the western part of Fiji. I did all my mm. primary school years there, my secondary school year there. Uh, I did my first undergrad there at the University of the South Pacific. Then I did mm. some studies with the University of Southern Queensland and then here in Aotearoa. In yeah, New Zealand. Totally, totally Fiji born and raised. Wow. <laughs> and so in terms of... But go ahead. <laughs> but I've been to but I've been to my grandmother who raised us in the 70s before she migrated to Australia herself. I'm wearing her scarf today because I'm honoring Aww. her. She was my first storyteller, my grandmother. Mm. Uh, she took us to the island for three years and we lived there on the island and then she brought us back in 75, 76. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up your grandma because I wanted to ask, like, who were, you know, you're a writer, you're a poet, like, who were the first storytellers for you? And did you have access to books or <laughs> were they stories that your parents and your grandparents told you? Oh, my gosh. That's, uh, you know, when you say grandmothers, I'm part of a, I'm just going to go there a little and then I'll come back to you. We're part of a panel. There are four researchers here at the University of the South Pacific. We're part of a panel where we're paying homage to our grandmothers and how our grandmothers influenced us in our research. And so when you ask about that, I said, yeah, my grandmother has um, her impact on, I have found a place for her in my research because she is, she was, she is, she's still alive. She is my first storyteller. She is my first book. We, I didn't grow up with books, believe it or not. We grew up with stories. I mean, she was the book, eh? She was the one telling us the stories every night on her mat or on her mattress or in a mosquito net in mm -hmm. Vatakola at the time in the 1970s. So my stories were through her. And it was when I went to school that I started, you know, the books, the, the, the libraries in the schools. I can still remember <laughs> When my grandmother left, I giggled because I I, I I think of those books now with a lot of font, fondness. When my grandmother left in the 1980s, my parents then started taking us to the Super City Library. And my first book was on Clifford the Red Dog. What were those other books? The Little Golden Books. Remember those? Oh, yes, yes. The Little Golden Books. And then wow. when I went to... Um, secondary school and and you know going further there were the Annette Blyton series you know and all the secret seven and all of those and then oh wow. dare I say then I got into a secondary school and then I was introduced to Mills and Boons and Harlequin <laughs> no judgment oh, my friend no judgment <laughs> And in those books, you know, when we started reading those books, we would hide them under the pillow because, you know, we were not allowed to read those books in the house. So we'd read, my sister and I would read, and then we would hear our parents come and we'd hide the books under the house, under the, under the pillowcases. So yeah, and then I started into the serious reading when you got into university and doing the literature degree and the mm. literary fiction and all of that. Eh? But that was my reading history. <laughs> wow. You know, but at what point, though, I wonder, 
did you get interested in actually writing like creating your own stories was it university or was it no. in high school did someone inspire yes. you yes it was in high school and i think i carried my mother's love of storytelling into primary and into high school eh? but it was in high school that i that we had all these fantastic english teachers and i remember them all of them my, and I first started writing for the magazine. You know, most of us write for the magazine, <laughs> the school magazine. And I had this one, and she's in New Zealand now, really. I've been wanting to get in touch with her. She was Mrs. Grace Reddy. She was our English teacher at um, All Saints Secondary School. And then when I went to high school, it was Mrs. Pauline Pauline Chang, Pauline Ryland, all these wonderful English teachers that encouraged us to write in the magazine. And, oh, we love to write. And English was my favorite subject. I loved English more than any other. <laughs> and excelled in English more than any other, more than the other subjects. Yeah, but, yes, the English teachers mm. were very important in, in the in the, um, in the growth of that. And then I took it on to university. But somehow university was uh, very serious, you know. Yes. University kind of took out the playfulness and and the love of writing. You know, I, suddenly I had to be serious and read all this <laughs> literary fiction and write all these things. And and then I kind of picked up the writing after university. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was very strange, eh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, so. In terms of your writing, you as a writer, you know, your creative process, can you describe the space where you do your writing? Um, are you a desk person? Are you, I need to relax outside under a tree kind of like, what is your, what does your space look like when you're creating these stories in your mind or so writing? So it depends on the phase of, of a particular piece. Eh? So if I'm on the go, so I often have my phone with me all the time and I, I open up to the apps. I have the notes app open. Yes. So I'm constantly recording things as um, mm. if I see something that catches my attention or if I hear someone and it makes me respond in a certain way, I'll quickly write it down. Eh? Or if I read something or if I watch something on Netflix and I like it and I write it down or if I have an idea and I write it down. So I collect first. I kind of collect stuff first on the apps, on the note-taking app. Then I'll mull over it and mull <laughs> over it, about it like many minds do, tear it apart. And then when I'm ready with an idea to, you know, to record it all down, then I go to the computer. So it's, it's in different spaces. And then mm. the, the end product is often on the computer. But, you know, creatives are cursed with not being satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> Constantly chopping, 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 changing, changing. Oh, my God. So, yeah, it, it can be tumultuous. Uh, it can be haphazard. Mm. Um, but when I've been asked to write uh, on a commission project, then I'm more disciplined eh? because there's a deadline and then I have to make sure that it fits the specs and make sure that it's out in this particular time. So, yeah, it kind of depends on the writing, the writing task and the phase of the writing. Mm. You know, your poetry collection, The Light and Dark and Our Stuff, you know, I read, I've, I read on this website that it was inspired by your eight-year-old nephew's <laughs> observation yes. that poetry books are boring. 
because there are no pictures. So tell us about this nephew of yours who is probably not eight years old anymore. But no. go ahead. <laughs> he's he's uh, 12 now. His name is Oscar. So uh, one day I decided to interview my, my niece and my nephew. I, my fanga is Lapuke. He lives with me. He's the older brother and his brother Oscar. But it was Oscar's response. When I asked Lapuke what was poetry, oh, they all gave me what poetry. But it was Oscar's response. He was so candid. He was so straightforward with me. He said, I hate it. I hate poetry books. They're so boring. There's no pictures. So I was struck by that. I said, well, I'll give you, you want, you want a poetry book with pictures? I'll give you a poetry book. <laughs> Wow. So, um, it made me think about poetry books and mm. what we and how we present poetry to young people or how we mm. present poetry itself. Eh? So poetry has often had um has often not been, I think, in my opinion, has often not been taught well. I mean, we often beat it too hard and we mm. formalize it too much. And so and and rarely do I see pictures in poetry books. And I love playing with the graphic and the text. I love mm. the relationship between the graphic and the text. So I decided to, well, this is going to be my first collection and I'm going to put pictures in them. And that's how it came about. You know, that's awesome. I was wondering about the, the you know, publishing and, and that space. Like how do you, as you were putting this collection together, did you already have a publisher that, you know, ready to go like do you self-publish like how difficult is it because you're you do the writing and you're like this is it I'm happy but then that next step of actually getting the book you know publishing it getting it out there promoting it do you have a team that help you do that or is it self-promotion like you are doing everything well with the light and dark in my stuff I decided when I had this idea that I would publish it myself, you know, because mm. I wanted the book to look a certain way. I wanted the book to feel a certain way, you know, in the in my hands. And sometimes I find that as writers, because it's often sent to a publisher, we do not have control of the final product, the artifact in our hands. So mm. we don't see it until it's done. And I think the writing process should continue to the very end where you get the product in your hand and you feel it and you hold it and you see what it's like, it's tangible. So I wanted, I wanted that control. And I knew that if I'd given it to someone, they would have changed it. They would have, you know, marketed according to their marketing models. And I, and I really didn't want that because the idea came from my nephew and I wanted it to be held with us. Eh? Mm. So I had to do my research. If Lani was, Lani went, Yam was here, we would laugh because <laughs> And these are very similar. We, mm. we, we, it was trial and error. We didn't know. But so it was a lot of research for me. How do mm. I get it published? What do I do? What the hell is an ISBN number? <laughs> <laughs> All those little things that matter. <laughs> I totally forgot about the ISBN number. So when the book went to press, I mean, when the book was printed, it came out. And then I said, oh, heck, I forgot the ISBN <laughs> <laughs> the ISBN number was done after, and then I had to print it on stickers and then put it on. And put the it book. on. But it was totally self-published because mm. I was very concerned 
of it looking a certain way. I wanted color and I wanted, so I was looking for an uh, illustrator. I went and I looked for an illustrator and I showed her my vision and I showed her the kinds of images that I wanted with the poem. And so we were, that's how we collaborated on the book. And I, because, you know, to, to, to do a fully illustrated poetry book, would be very costly. So I decided, right. okay, this is my first one. So I'm going to do a small chapbook instead of 10 poems only. So mm. that's how it came about. What an interesting process it was. Whether I do it again? <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, like, does that give you courage to be like, you know what, I did it the first time. It was great. And, you know, because listening to you, it's like having the say, right? Having, you know, you are making all those Mm. important cause the last thing you want is the book to come and you're looking at it like that's not how I wanted it to look so are you more confident now to say that my next project perhaps I will work with another yes. team another small team yes so what the, that, that's such a good question because I actually asked myself that after the book was released and you know I sent it out and I said to myself, so what did I do then that I would do differently now? Mm. <laughs> what I would do differently now is I would get on board a, a reader, someone, because I didn't test mm. read it. I just, I wanted it to be there like this. So mm. I would get, I would get a number of poets on board to test read it, to give me feedback, et cetera, et cetera, which I didn't do in the first one. Right. So I'm going to definitely keep that in mind. And I've, I've uh, identified poets that I'm going to send my work <laughs> Can you please read this? <laughs> That's awesome. And, you know, it's 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 good to know that you have people that you can reach out to. You know, other poets have a collective that you can, you know. Since you did the anthology, I'm sure there are a number of people that, that contributed to the Vi anthology that you can reach out to. So I'm, I'm excited for you. Like, I think it's oh, great that yeah. you're just out there doing your thing and doing it the way that you want it to be you know, produce. I love it. Absolutely would, love it. <laughs> you know, I must, I must acknowledge Lani went young here because, because mm. um, I, uh, when I wanted to self-publish, she was the only Pacific writer, if not the only Pacific writer at that time who was publishing and doing a lot of self-publishing. Mm. So I was very, I said, look at this woman, man. She is doing what she wants to do and taking control. Mm. So I kind of, true inspiration from her and she's a phenomenal writer and a fellow sister writer who supports other writers phenomenal yeah amazing amazing phenomenal shout out to Lani Went Young oh my gosh mm. um you know I wanted to, it is Rotuman Language Week and I wanted to you know because Again, I was doing some research on you. And and Rotuman language, it's it's actually listed as one of UNESCO's endangered languages, right? And I wanted to talk about the work that you are doing. Oh, thank you. Um, so the work that I'm doing is connected to my PhD research here at the University mm. of Waikato. Uh, I have an applied linguistics background. So I'm interested in languages and and how they're taught in schools, et cetera, et cetera, or how languages are taught and how they permeate in communities. So in my PhD research, I'm um, it's a PhD with creative practice. I'm looking at the conditions that allow for the multilingual writing of poetry, Rutuman English. 
So the creative mm -hmm. component of that research is a collection of multilingual Ottoman English poetry. So what I'm interested in seeing is um, how the reading of Rutuman creative language text impacts the creativity, the creative writing of multilingual Rutuman English poetry. So my mm. research is collect, connected to Rutuman language regeneration and all of that in, in New Zealand. Mm. Um, but uh, I think in my research, I'm constantly thinking about the role of English. And this mm. is very controversial because we often tend to pit languages against each other, you know. Yeah. We, often, we often tend to pit languages against each other and we often tend to villainize English. And mm. I get that. I think we all get that and we all know where that's coming from because of what, you know, policies, education policies have done to our languages. Mm. But I'm looking at how English can work together with Fiang Rutuamta, Rutuman language, in mm. to generate languages because in the diaspora in New Zealand there are a lot of, uh, of young people who don't speak Rutuman and so to throw them into the deep end or to expose them to texts that are 100% Rutuman they're, they're going to struggle mm. so how do we use English to transition them slowly into mm. the language um, in terms of working with other community members here in Hamilton I have a good group of Rutuman um Kaharongi here in Hamilton, there is this wonderful young man who is so instrumental in the Rutuman language space. His name is Maluseo Monise, and I'd like to shout out to him here. He is uh, a phenomenal youth leader here. He is so good with the language, and he draws people together. And um, so, yeah, so, that, so that, that's where my mm. work is, here in Hamilton community, in my family, and the research. Yeah, you mentioned young people, um, and I was wondering, in terms of the language and the culture, um, with your, you know, with your uh, Rotuma community there in New Zealand, is there an interest from, you know, young people to really learn about their culture and learn the language, or is it, um, like, how do you catch them? How do you keep the what things are being done to to make sure that they retain that or they they are learning or continuing you know yes those stories and and traditions and rituals there seems to be evidence that there is some interest i mean here in 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 new zealand um the retirement communities in auckland are quite strong we have uh, Rutuman services, I mean, Rutuman church every Sunday. Young people go to church and they hear those. There is a lot of uh, work with uh, Rutuman music and there is another um, phenomenal Rutuman language champion in Auckland. Her name is Terito Pairo and she oh. was, hey, you know her? She I was read very, something about her. <laughs> I was like, that name sounds familiar. <laughs> She was very instrumental in translating nursery uh, nursery rhymes into Rutuman. Mm. And uh, uh, there is also um, the PMN Pamana Rutuman program, which oh, yes. is, which is, which is, uh, and I find that that program, not only for me, but 
um, from what I read on Facebook and what I read on social media, that program is making a lot of connections with younger Rutumans. So I think the we're we're in this we're in this space where yes we we are we are creating awareness and and some some ground with younger people, mm. and I think some families too are doing that better than others. I struggle with my 14-year-old. <laughs> I think it comes to journeys, eh? I mean, everyone has mm. their different journeys. We would like, you know, we really like all our young people to get on board quickly, but I think it slightly varies. But certainly there are programs and, and activities and things that are going on in the community where we, we're not short of it. And it's definitely, mm. awareness is definitely there. That's awesome. That's really good to hear. Um, that is really, really good to hear. I was thinking about uh, your poem, The Quickest Way to Trap a Folk Tale. Um, and I read that it was in response to there was some copywriting issues. Are you able to speak a little bit about that? Or has it been resolved since this was written about um, or brought to light? <laughs> That, oh, that was such an interesting poem to write. Um, it took me a number of years to write it. And mm -hmm. this is, uh, this is when I, I went back to the, this Rutuman writer, Titi Fanua, and his collection of short stories. When I started reading them, I started reading, I took out his book when I came to New Zealand. You know, all these people in the diaspora, when they go away, they mm -hmm. reach out for all their texts. So I, it was here in New Zealand when I pulled out Titi Fanua's book and I started to look for where is this book available? How do we get access to this book? I mean, it was at the University of Waikato Library, but if we didn't have the University of Waikato Library, how do people, how do my people get access to this book? And so when I started asking those questions, I started researching where the book was available. So the book was available at the University of the South Pacific Bookshop. They're available in um, libraries, mm. but they're not available in free access form. So mm. they were initially published at the in the Oceania Journal in 1939. And if you wanted to get a copy, and you can only get access to these journals if you're part of a library or you're part of a university, yeah. So extra access was so restricted, and I thought this is incredible that we have to we have to go through a lot of stumbling, go through a lot of obstacles in order to get these stories which belong to us. And I thought this 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 is not right. And so the poem came out of that that we have all these institutions going into our islands and our villages mm. and taking stuff out, and then blocking them, locking them in copyright, then when you want to get access to it, it's really hard to get access to it. So I was quite angry. I was quite angry about that. But this is the story behind the the collection that was available at the University of the South Pacific, that it's available for $10. <laughs> it makes it any better, you know? $10 because it should be free. It should be portal where mm. if we wanted it we can just go and download it and that's where the poem came from and I think a lot of institutions are irresponsible in not opening up their vaults to the mm. public especially when the knowledge comes from uh, hello who us you know the yes. people 
But I think we're moving in that direction. I think a lot of universities are now opening up and digitizing their information. Mm. The Australian National University has done that. Um, University of Hawaii has done that. And I know Alan Howard has done a lot of research there and he has digitized a lot of his stuff and put it on the web. Um, the archives are beginning to digitize their stuff, Digita, Digita Pacifica, the mm. Turnbull. They're all digitizing this. They're all catching up to yes. this idea that, the knowledge should not be kept in your vaults. These are part of the community, so bring them out. Mm. So that was the poem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to ask because, because you know, I thought, man, this is so crazy, you know, because it's not just stories, um, artifacts. I mean, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother chapter. That's a whole nother ep podcast episode. But, do you know, <laughs> you know, it made me think about, um, writers like yourself are there other um you know other writers uh from you know rotuman writers who are putting stories out there putting resources out there writing or is it i mean is it growing as is, is a collective you know starting to grow is it something that's still quite new are you on your own Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> I wish I could tell you I'm on my own, but I'm so glad to tell you that I'm not on my own. Excellent, excellent. So for my PhD proposal, I had to, well, not I had to, but I had to look at, I had to position my work within existing Rutuman literature. So I had to kind of go into the mapping of Rutuman literature and what Rutuman literature is and where does the Rutuman literature start from and who, who are the writers today? And I was telling my supervisor, the wonderful, beautiful, absolutely fantastic Dr. Alice Tipunga Somerville, that the body of Rutuman literature is so huge. It wow. is so expensive that you I, I and I was I, I was so pleasantly surprised. <laughs> I remember I remember when I was writing that section of my proposal, I would cry a lot because mm. I was so emotionally overcome by finding. All these writers, all these, and their works in the archives, my grandfather's work, you know, newsletters in the 1914, um, but Vilisoni Heronica wasn't the only one writing. There were other short story writers like Macareta Manueli, and oh, there were so many. And then now I find, and when we talk about poetry, I'm not the only poet. There's so many others. But this is the thing. You don't see them in mainstream media publication. Mm. They're all writing online. They're in the virtual spaces. Okay. We, yes. We have phenomenal Rutuman language poets in the virtual spaces. Mm. I can name three off my fingers. There's Safudaya, Sarote Eresito, Andrew Beni Fatiaki, and Manuel Wilsoni. These wow. are the online poets, and they're all writing in different spaces. Manu is writing in Dubai, Sarote and um, Safu are writing in Suva, I think. Yeah, Suva, and mm. who's the other one? I've gotten his name. Oh, Rupeni Fatiaki is also in Fiji. So we're all in these different places, writing in these different places. We also have a memoir, wow. right? A woman who wrote a memoir about. So, yeah, they are writers. There are many written wow. writers. The, the literature is, is quite rich, and we often think mm. of Phyllis Herinico as the only writer. Mm. But there are 
is not the only one. There's many others. Man, that's awesome. So another poem of yours, <laughs> Writing Each Other. So Creative Waikato. Um, it was Kotahitanga Through Creativity Campaign in 2020. So I come across, you know, I'm searching you on YouTube and I'm like, Okay, what's this? And yeah, can you tell us a little bit? Because I've read that it was basically this project was to spark crucial conversations against racism and fuel the narrative for Kotahitanga, so unity. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit um, to that that experience being a part of um, that project? Oh, that, that I really love the project because, you know, sometimes we often um, think, you know, these catchphrases, you know, working together, kotahitanga, they can be all of these catchphrases and, you know, they, so I really wanted to approach that from a, from a, from a place that was very important to me. I just didn't want it to be, oh, this flimsy solution for mm. unity. No, I really wanted to hit hard where I was going. And at that time, when that request came, we had all this Black Lives Matter movement that was going mm. on. Eh? So a, a lot of that narrative was going on and a lot of racism at the Waikato was going on and we mm. had this huge problem. So I, I approached it from a literary point of view. You know how we approach literature, that literature is always English. We learn English. We learn this mm. literature. And, you know, our, our, our own languages are sidelined. So literature is the focus. I mean, this colonial mentality of pitting English against our languages. So my approach to Kotahitanga was, well, no. If you're really speaking of genuine Kotahitanga and unity, then you need to shift. You need to make room. You need to move over and bring all the people that you have marginalized into the frame so mm. the shift was me shifting from English to Rutuman in the poem. So I start off with English. I said, oh, yes. la, la, la. I learned my English. And then I said, but this is, this is me. And then I write the story of Leah's Owl and the Pussycat. Rutuman. Yes, <laughs> yes. Because, you know, I was listening. I was like, oh, she's now speaking in Rutuman. Wait, does she just say the Owl and the Pussycat? What's going on here? I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Yes, because, you know, in um, literature class, in my literature undergrad class, we, we learned the, the Norton anthology was the text that we had to learn. And, and, then we, and I got to learn uh, about, we studied Leah's um, mm. Owl and the Pussycat. And I recalled my literature teacher performing that, you know, poem in, in class. And so for me, it was not, well, kohitanga means, this is what kohitanga, Leah and the Owl and the Pussycat means to me. And I flipped it uh, mm. to the Brutuma version of Owl and Pussycat, you know, that, uh, you know, for us, the Owl and the Pussycat, they're enemies. Cat eats Owl. I mean, they don't, they're not lovey-dovey and they don't sail into the sunset. <laughs> so I brought on that Owl. Uh, Cat eats owl for Christ's sake. So, you know, I turned it into a story. And so I said, yeah, this is our version of Leah's Owl and the Pussycat, my version, Rutuman style. And at mm. the end, I said, if you, if you, my call was, if you really wanted Kohitanga, then you need to learn me as I've learned you. It has to be reciprocal and symbiotic and not, you know, mainstream versus marginal. So that was my solution for Kohitanga, Kotahitanga mm. and us poets, all the poets that were asked to write, had to bring in a certain kind of solution or an interpretation of that term 
So that was my interpretation. Mm. <laughs> and pussycat against each other. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Gotta speak your truth. <laughs> um, Which is so yeah. ironic in a way. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was... In terms of, um, you know, so Creative Waikato with that project, are there other similar projects that you have been a part of, um, you know, in terms of social justice and, you know, advocacy and activism? Like, are there other passion projects that you have been a part of or are currently part of, you know, social justice? Mm -hmm. Uh, there's one that I'm currently preparing for, which is sometime in what, what is it, April? <laughs> I should look at me. I'm checking. It's May. <laughs> it's May. It's, oh, ooh, I better start. I better start. Uh, in June, I will be part of the International Poetry Festival on climate change. So we're all we're all not climate change. Uh, world peace. So there are, I think it features 135 poets from around the world. And we will be, I think the festival comes from Colombia. So mm. we're all reading, I think there are seven poets from New Zealand who are part of this. So, yep, I've uh, written a number of pieces on world peace and what world peace means for me and my interpretation of what it is. And I will be participating in that. Mm. Um but no, I've also, other than that, I've just written from my own point of view, you know, from my from my own private space and re- in reaction to other issues of um, social issues. But that, that's mm. the one that I'm preparing for right now. Mm. You know, I was thinking about identity. Um, you know, uh, you know, you moved to New Zealand um, in twenty. 20- 2007 uh in terms of your identity and who you are um how has moving to New Zealand I mean I know like 2007 was it was a long it was quite a while ago but how has moving there really helped to I guess help you to become firm in your identity as a Rotuman woman uh, as an educator as a learner, as a mother, I guess because you know we we think about New Zealand uh, places like Auckland. I'm from Auckland, very multicultural, and you're you know you're around many different cultures, and I wonder how that experience mm-hmm. has kind of really helped you. Yeah, just in terms of your identity and yeah, <laughs> that's. I mean, I, I think about that a lot. really um i'm ashamed to say that now that i'm in in this space i've been here for the last 14 years i often i often reflect to my time in fiji and if i'm honest with myself (laughs) i think in fiji i took a lot of things for granted a lot of my rotumanness for granted i was very blasé about being you know oh i'm part of fiji yeah rotuma you know so what kind of a thing but moving um moving to new zealand has really shifted my focus i'm more aware of myself as a person in the diaspora mm. i'm more i have developed that identity i have uh, started thinking about the the myth of disconnection when you move from your islands because you actually i think that's quite dangerous to actually think that the further away you are, the more disconnected you are. I, it's done quite the opposite for me. 
actually. It's reaffirmed my connections. And lo and behold, it has strengthened my language. I am reading, writing, and speaking Rutuma now more than I ever did back in Fiji. Go figure, right? I mean, but, but this is this is what coming to New Zealand has done for me. Mm. And also being with Tangata Whenua, you know, being in a place where we see Tangata Whenua in their space, in, mm. in the settler colony. And uh, I appreciate uh, being an Indigenous person even more, more so than I ever did in Fiji. I have a sharpened sense of indigeneity, my connection to land, to whenua, to people. And that has grown immensely being here. And it's also changed my writing tremendously. Mm. You know, I write now from a very different lens. I feel connected to other Rutumans in Australia in, in other hotspots around the world. So, yes, the, the moving, you know, making the decision to pack your bags and cross the sea, yeah, a lot of things come with it, eh? a lot of beautiful things. For me, mm. it has intellectually, spiritually, emotionally. You were um, a contributor for VA Anthology, Stories by Women of the Moana. I mean, this mm. just... The wealth of knowledge, the the writers, just oh my goodness! Tell me um, what it was like to be a part of this, um, to be able to contribute, you know, some you know your writing to this anthology, knowing that there are other strong women. Just yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> I was very honoured to, to have been asked, really. And uh, this book, for me, is special, not because it's my first short story ever written. So, I mean, it's the first short story ever published. But it is what Lani and Cecilia did. You know, they, they had this idea. They said, okay, let's run with it. They ran with it. They didn't need to ask anyone permission. Right. They didn't need to check with anyone. They just, whew, they went and they did this book. And for me, it's like, well done on you. But knowing the gates that we have with mainstream publishing, publication, they want it to be this standard. They want it to be that standard. Cecilia mm. and Lani said, no, it'll be about us. This is the way we want to do it. And we will do it this way. And so my deepest admiration to Cecilia and Lani. That was my first point. But writing that short story. Yes. Tell us about so your short story. <laughs> the deadline was short. So I had to really push myself. And I had to, you know, really put on. So when, I, when I say about when you're writing for a commission, when you're writing for a specific task, the pressure is on eh? because you know the deadline. So I had to really think about, I submitted that twice. Submitted that twice because you know I read poets. Poets just write right, few right. sentences, send it off. But this they wanted three thousand words, you know. So I had to push to get to. <laughs> I don't know how I did it, but Lani and Cecilia were phenomenal in their feedback. Mm. They wanted more. They told me that they wanted more, and they then they the feedback was kind and generous and very encouraging to the point that 
okay, I'm going to go back to my keyboard and I'm going <laughs> to do it again. So you know what? I was inspired to get back to the keyboard and finish it off and send it. And I was quite happy with the final product. But you see, the editorial process was also very good. Eh? They were mm. very, very, they handled our stories, my story, my experience. They handled it. They took care of it and they gave us good feedback. But far out. And I was in, in the middle of writing my proposal. <laughs> <laughs> Man, <laughs> I only had a month to go. And, woo, so a short story and proposal going on at the same time. So it's, it's, yes, I'll never forget that. It's it's a special book for me and a special mm. story because of the process and the way it was handled. Eh? But far out, and I thank them. I thank them so much for the opportunity. So if there is another part two, I'm going to be writing another. <laughs> Start writing right now. <laughs> right now. <laughs> Start writing another one. Yeah. Um, that was, that was so, you know, you, you mentioned your very first short story. Mm. In, for the listeners, for those watching, uh, man, how did, yeah, tell <laughs> us about the idea. Like, what was it, the first spark for the idea? Like, it's your first short story. Like you said, poetry, oh, it's so easy. You just get it done. But, Man, this is a whole nother level of yes, the shots. Yes, I'm, I'm an impatient writer. You know, I just want the text to start and wrap up quickly and done, tied up next. You know, but this one here, I had to think about the characters. I needed to think about how the story transitioned and mm. all of that stuff that I didn't think about. But the story, the the writing of the Vuniwai started uh, in a creative writing class. Um, called Voices and Image that I took mm. two years ago. So I, the, the story kind of started, the, the bare bones of the story was laid in that creative writing class. And I submitted it as a portfolio, as part of my portfolio. And so when Lani and Cecilia wrote, they said, do you have anything? Do you have anything that you can, you know? And I said, oh, I have the story. I can do it. So, whoa. So pull <laughs> the story out. And then I started working on the story. And then it just started growing and growing. Part one, sent it. They gave me feedback. Part two, it just developed into the Buniwai. So the bones were planted two years ago and the story mm. completed last year. So it's quite a quite a process. <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, do you want to write a novel? Is that I feel like naturally that's the next step. Just saying. <laughs> wink, wink. Just saying. <laughs> um, you know, do Ooh. you or... I don't know. Oh, like I'll have you know. I have it, it's. I'll have to train, train for that. You know, do literary training. The stamina. <laughs> I, I I have a lot of admiration for people who write novels. The stamina to keep up with writing the novel, perhaps a, maybe in the future. But I have to build my literary <laughs> muscles first to keep up. With the stamina. Otherwise, I'm going to get puffed out by word three thousand. Oh, you're so funny. Um, you mentioned muscles. So that takes me to my next point, self-care. How do you know, I ask all the guests this question, like how do you look after yourself? Like how do you make sure that your family is, you know, like everything's, everyone, everyone's in check now, now this is me time. How do you do that? What do you do? I uh, read and I write. Sometimes writing can be the thing that switches me off from all the, the kach-kach going on in the background. 
um, I visit my brother's grandchildren, my grandnieces and nephews. I find a lot of enjoyment hanging around with little people. Hey, you know, little people, but only for a while. After that, you want to go home. <laughs> You're like, I've had enough. Please go. <laughs> oh, I missed you, but now I have to go home now. <laughs> yeah, so hanging out with my little people, um, Netflixing. Oh my God, binge want binge watching Bridgerton. Ha ha ha! I binge watch all those episodes <laughs> of Netflix. So these things, eh? Binge watching, um, creative writing, reading, and sometimes I find that walking, walking helps me a lot. And I started getting into the walking during lockdown, eh? When you couldn't go out anywhere, so I would right. walk around the neighborhood. My gosh, I know every cul-de-sac, crook and cranny in my <laughs> now. Seriously, but walking is lovely. A lot of creative ideas come to you when you're walking. So those are my go-to. Walking, little people, Netflix, what else? Writing, reading. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, future in terms of projects and future goals and aspirations, what do you have in mind? What do you have in store for us, for oh the fans of your writing for your followers that those are very good things to have eh? first of all uh complete my phd i mm. complete my phd and publish my first collection of multilingual poetry that looks at Russian language generation that is my immediate future and my, my near goal the other one is to when i had the other one and i've forgotten what it was now Oh, yes. The other one is to publish a set of uh, children's books. This is, when, it, when we talk of children, uh, Rutuman literature, this is one mm. gap in the Rutuman literary space. We, we don't have too many children's lit, children's mm. books. So that's an area that I'd like to go into, a collection of children's literature and my, my first collection, full collection. Of multilingual poetry, <laughs> and of mm. course, finish the bloody PhD. <laughs> <laughs> finish the PhD, finish or do all of that, and then start on the novel. <laughs> wink, wink. Okay, we'll see. <laughs> um, if a book was named, um, if a book was written about you, what do you think that book would be called? Rebel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, rebel. Okay. <laughs> Okay, okay. I like that. Ritual we can rebel. that. <laughs> Ritual and Rebel. Ritual and Rebel. R squared. Uh, I like that. I like that. Uh, um, book recommendations. You know, we're nearing the end. What do you have for us? What, you know, what are you reading? Or what would you say is this is a must read? Uh, for me, it's not who, but what. Uh, mm. So I've been... Um, I'm a, I've got a huge literary crush on medical practitioners, doctors, surgeons who oh. can write creatively. Um, so if you were to ask me, recommend a poetry collection, I would say drop hands down playing God by Dr. By Glenn Colhoun. Hmm. This book. If you have this book. Oh, okay. So he's a medical practitioner, but he writes poetry and all his poems are based on his clinical cases and his wow. patients. Yes, so I enjoy this kind of literature. I enjoy doctors who, who write creative <laughs> literature. So that's my that's my that's my mojo. 
Yeah, how did you even come across that though? I'm like, you were just looking for something to read and came across medical practice. Like, I didn't know how does that happen? So my love for the medical humanities and doctors, medical literature, creative mm. literature, started in 2003. And I pulled this book out to show you 2003. How many years ago was that? 19. Uh, 19 years ago, very quickly, <laughs> when I bought this book from the University of the South Pacific Library, oh. From the Edge of the Couch, um, Bizarre Psychiatric Crisis and What They Teach Us About Ourselves. So this guy, he's a psychiatrist, but his writing mm. is creative nonfiction. And I fell in love with this writing style. And so I've always been looking for surgeons, especially surgeons, <laughs> you know, and the experience with, with bodies and people mm. in, um, and uh, uh, general practitioners and their creative non-fiction writing of those cases and I, I've been reading quite a bit of the, this type of literature but for poetry this is the one and gotcha. this is what <laughs> he was when did I arrive 2007 2008 I moved to New Plymouth and I was on my own my first job in New Plymouth and on the tv at eight o'clock in the morning he was featured on, he was one of the people on the program. And I, I was just transfixed looking at him and him talking about his poetry. And then I went and found his book. I went and bought his book. And ever since then, I have a big, big fan of creative, medical, creative nonfiction. That That's is my, awesome. My that is so, you know what? I am so intrigued. I mean, that is so fascinating. I feel like after this, I'll be doing some Googling, like, I need to find out who these people are, what yeah. what they're writing. <laughs> this is another person, Atul wow. Gwande, that I read. He, wrote, he writes about uh, the care of the elderly. I've mm. read this book. This is really good. Yeah. And this is my my partner earned brownie points by giving me this birthday present. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> he knows you well, and he should. <laughs> I said, good man, good man, good man. I'll cook you dinner. I'll cook you dinner. <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness. Oh, you are, oh, you are just Those are my recommendations. life. I love it. That is. I And I can't even tell you how much I am going to be taking away from this interview. Like, I'm like amazed. I'm inspired. <laughs> I, I don't even know what else to say, to be honest. Um, however, we have reached, you know, we're now drawing to an end. And I just, let me get myself together. I have to say, um, Mary, it, it is, oh, I just, it is such an honor to have you on the show. Like, I am just so appreciative of the fact that I know everyone's busy. I know you're a PhD student. I know you've got a lot going on. Um, going on. But when I reached out to you, you responded. <laughs> you didn't give me the scene. You actually responded. And I appreciate that. And I am just so grateful for the wisdom and the gems and the energy and the inspiration that you've shared in this interview. Like, I just... There are so many takeaways I'm still um, trying to process. And so I wanted to thank you. I just want to thank you so much for sharing a bit of your journey. Um, yeah, not just as a writer, but life journey, uh, culture, your identity. 
your people, uh, your mm. language, you know, thank you so much. Um, I want to wish you all the best thank for you. the rest of the year. Um, you got this, you've got, you know, get that PhD, get it done. You've got this. I know you got this. Um, all the best, wishing you and your family well, stay safe, you know, as we continue to live through this pandemic. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm I'm excited to just continue to follow your journey and, and see where you're going. Um, and that Rotuman language is staying alive and, mm. and the culture is, you know, you keep building your communities. Like, I love to see that. So thank you. I will now hand it over to you just to you know, share some final words of encouragement uh, for anyone who's perhaps looking for some motivation uh, as a writer or just life in general. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for uh, this space. It's not only me talking about my work, but it's also a space for me to talk about the Rutuman language and knowing that it's Rutuman language speak. So thank you for opening up your space for the language during this particular time in New Zealand. Um, I really, really appreciate that. So I'm very, very happy to stay up and talk to you with cups of coffee. <laughs> um, advice for up-and-coming writers. Um, you know, as, as, as English teach pe people who teach English, we know the value of reading. And um, it is very hard to write if you do not read. So I would encourage you, anyone who's thinking of, of writing, to, to read. Read pro prolifically. If you're a poet, read poetry prolifically. If you want to write novels and short stories, read short story writers. Read novelist and there is this advice that i'm going to steal from selena to sitala marsh which i thought was quite quite good eh don't ghettoize your your reading meaning don't just only read a certain groups of people read widely you know see what's out there read widely um and with writing now back to writing find people find groups find communities whom you can share your writing with when I first came to, when I arrived in New Zealand, I looked for a group of writers to, to, to work with. And I found a group in Hamilton called Poets Alive. They've been helpful in reading, writing and critiquing writing, giving feedback. So, so those would be my two main uh, suggestions for people who are trying to, who are setting out to write. Read prolifically and find like-minded people who are on similar journeys Make friends with them. Insist on them. <laughs> <laughs> Insist. <laughs> oh, but don't force line it. No, insist. No, but, but seriously. <laughs> yes, but seriously. Find your tribe. Find your tribe of writers. And find your, your readers. Find your books. And run from there. Run. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rosa. Thank you for the opportunity.